0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 9, Exodus chapters 10 and 11. Well, we're nearing the end of the strokes or the plagues against Egypt that uh, Abba has ordained in order that Pharaoh will agree to release the Hebrews from their bondage. So far, nothing's worked. Pharaoh's heart has become progressively intransigent in proportion to the escalating severity of the calamities that the Lord has visited upon Egypt. Some of this hardening of Pharaoh's heart has been Yehovah. Some of it has been Pharaoh's iron will. Even more, it's become apparent to the Egyptian people as well as the government that the Hebrews are being somehow miraculously spared from all this, except for the first couple of disasters. So let's continue now by reading Exodus chapter 10 together. Exodus chapter 10. Adonai said to Moshe, go to Pharaoh, for I have made him and his servants hard hearted so that I can demonstrate these signs of mine among them so that you can tell your son and grandson about what I did to Egypt and about my signs that I demonstrated among them. And so that you will all know that I am Adonai. Moshe and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Here is what Adonai, God of the Hebrews, says. How much longer will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go, so that they can worship me. Otherwise, if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. One won't be able to see the ground, so completely will the locusts cover it. They will eat anything you still have that escaped the hail including every tree you have growing in the field. They will fill your houses and those of your servants and of all the Egyptians. It will be like nothing your fathers or their fathers have ever seen since the day they were born until today. Then he turned his back and left. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How much longer must this fellow be a snare for us? Let the people go and worship Adonai their God. Don't you understand yet? That Egypt is being destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought to Pharaoh again, and he said to them, Go worship Adonai your God, but who exactly is going? And Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, our sons, our sons and our daughters, we'll go with our flocks and herds, for we must celebrate a feast to Adonai. And Pharaoh said to them, Adonai certainly will be with you, if I ever let you go with your children. All right, it's clear that you are up to no good. Nothing doing. Just the men among you may go and worship Adonai. That's what you want, isn't it? And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Adonai said to Moses, Reach out your hand over the land of Egypt so that the locusts will invade the land and eat every plant that hail has left. Moses reached out with his staff over the land of Egypt and I caused an east wind to blow on the land all day and all night and in the morning the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts went up all over the land of Egypt and settled throughout Egypt's territory. It was an invasion more severe than there had ever been before or will ever be again. They completely covered the ground so that the ground looked black They ate every plant growing from the ground and all the fruit of the trees left by the hail. Not one green thing remained, not a tree, not a plant in the field. In all the land of Egypt, Pharaoh hurried to summon Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Adonai your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin just this once. Intercede with Adonai your God so that he will at least take away from me this deadly plague. He went out from Pharaoh and interceded with Adonai and Adonai reversed the wind and made it blow very strongly from the west. It took up the locusts and drove them into the Sea of Suf. Not one locust remained on Egyptian soil. But Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted and he didn't let the people of Israel go. Adonai said to Moses, reach out your hand toward the sky and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness so thick It can be felt. Moses reached out his hand toward the sky and there was a thick darkness in the entire land of Egypt for three days. People couldn't see each other. No one went anywhere for three days. But all the people of Israel had light in their homes. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship Adonai. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. Your children can go with you. Moses answered, you must also see to it that we have sacrifices and bird offerings so that we can sacrifice to Adonai our God. Our livestock will also go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we must choose some of them to worship Adonai our God. And we don't know which ones will need to worship Adonai until we get there. But Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted and he wouldn't let them go. Pharaoh said to them, Get away from me and you had better not see my face again. Because that day you see my face, you'll die. And Moses answered, well spoken, I will see your face no more. You know, we might look at these plagues of Egypt, the plagues against Egypt. Bloody water, hail, skin lesions, now locusts, and see them as ancient-sounding or something we'd only find in backwards nations, maybe even downright quaint. That is, if the Lord was doing this in our day, in America or Europe, for instance, the plagues would be a lot zippier. You know, they'd have a more modern and technological source and appeal. Nuclear bombs, bioweapons, our electrical grid failing, computer chips being neutralized, space aliens. But you know, if we think about every one of these strokes we're reading about in Exodus, it would be just as devastating today, anywhere in the world, as it was 3,000 years ago in Egypt. Imagine if all of our drinking water became polluted on a near-universal scale. Could we use filtration to solve it? Probably, but at a very great expense and only the wealthiest nations initially would even have it available. Hundreds of millions would die from little more than tainted water. Look at what a simple storm Hurricane Katrina Did to New Orleans and the surrounding area, how it bludgeoned our economy and came near to toppling our president. Nothing particularly high tech about a hurricane. Just a big wind, a lot of rain. Recall the Mount St. Helens disaster? A few years ago that, I mean the devastation it caused. The loss of life, the cost to Washington State's economy, and thousands upon thousands of acres of woodlands destroyed for decades to come. All this from a million-year-old volcano that does little more than spew smoke and molten rock. How about that tsunami? A couple of years ago, the estimated 500,000 lives that it took, the countless billions of dollars in damage it caused, all this from an earthquake and then a big wave of seawater. You can't get much more low-tech than that. I mean, when we look ahead... At the end times scenarios in the Bible, and we're told of these cataclysmic events that are going to eclipse all of human history, we typically want to convert the visions of God's prophets describing these events into high tech and science gone mad experiments, don't we? So we hear of Christian scholars and writers thinking this must be about a nuclear exchange or some horrible chemical weapon unleashed. We think in terms of Star Wars types of weapons. In fact, nothing man has invented or is likely to invent has ever approached the power of a single thunderstorm or a medium-sized meteor entering our atmosphere and striking our planet. As a result, when people look back at these horrible upheavals of nature over the last few years, you know, we tend to completely dismiss the hand of God in it. And we say, hey, this is just nature doing its thing. Don't turn it into one of these wacko religious judgment pronouncements. I mean, perhaps we can say that it was just nature doing its thing in Egypt. And perhaps it'll be nature doing its thing at the end of days. But make no mistake, it'll be nature doing it at God's command. And it will be unstoppable, and it will not likely be because men made it happen, as a modern global warming crowd seems to think. And as we should be learning by now, we need to discover God's pattern and how he deals with man. And we see how he's done it up to now, and it's certainly not been by means of technology advancements. All right. The coming cataclysms that we hear of in Revelation, I have no doubt, are not going to be ordained by men. Let me take a momentary detour to connect some dots for you, for those of you who have interest in prophecy, particularly in times prophecies. Very few Bible scholars, except for the most liberal who view the Bible as nothing more than an example example of ancient Hebrew literature and a collection of fanciful tales, would say that the nine plagues upon Egypt were symbolic, or they were allegorical, or they were metaphoric. That is, they weren't real. The words mean something else entirely. Mainstream scholars take the the Exodus plagues generally as literal, even if a few of them regard these miracles as nothing more than natural occurrences with no more or less frequency or intensity than is normally seen, that only the wording of the Bible embellishes and exaggerates. So it's fascinating to me to see these same scholars who take the exodus account of the plagues as literal, more often than not, they regard the Revelation accounts of the seal and bold judgments as symbolic and not literal. Most of the judgments of Revelation use the same natural elements, only greatly amplified and much wider spread than the Exodus account of the plagues do. Hail, insects, darkness, boils, oceans and rivers turn blood red, sea life dies. These all occur in Exodus just as they do in Revelation. Then of course there are Revelation judgments that are not in the Exodus plagues, but still they exist and occur naturally. Earthquakes, stars exploding, meteors coming through our atmosphere. Now, I only bring this up to kind of close the loop on this concept that I'm teaching you. That God's patterns and principles repeat throughout history and will continue to repeat until... The end of time. We see these same God patterns in Revelation, just as they were originally established in Torah, even with the same characteristics of how judgments are meted out. Now, I know many of you are interested in in times prophecy, so be aware that when you read of these incredibly destructive in times phenomena in Revelation that they're of the exact same substance and design that we read of in Exodus. You can take them literally, you should take them literally, because these things have happened before, literally. It's God's way to deal in a very consistent fashion with mankind, mankind at large, the world in general, and even specifically with his own people. Now, chapter 10 begins with yet another instruction by God to Moses to go into Pharaoh. And he reminds Moses that he has worked within Pharaoh to keep his heart hardened for a divine purpose. And that it is that all of these miracles and signs will occur and they will be seen and remembered among the Hebrews from generation to generation and that he has used Egypt for Israel's sake. Now sometimes we have a hard time with that concept that God would favor one above the other, even allowing one to be destroyed or ransomed to save the other. In this case, it's that the Egyptians would pay a high price for God's purposes and that God would keep a man's, Pharaoh's heart, hardened to achieve his purposes. I mean, I've heard often from believer and unbeliever alike that this just isn't fair of God to do things like this. It's just not fair. Well, I suppose if we actually believe that we can sit in judgment of God, then we can debate about his fairness. Okay? I don't feel I need to defend God's decisions. His laws and commands are what they are. They're perfect and all we need to know is what they are. Not necessarily why they are. I mean, have you been brought up to believe that all of God's decisions are for your best immediate benefit? Well, they're not. God's decisions are intended to achieve His purposes to the best benefit of His kingdom. Okay, not our personal, individual, earthly well-being. Our happiness and comfort and success are all secondary to God's divine purpose of bringing in His kingdom. Okay, I mean in, Mo- in verse 4 now, Moses announces to Pharaoh that if he doesn't free God's people today, that tomorrow, Egypt will be hit with a plague of locusts. And not only will the ground be so thick with them that the ground will seem to disappear, but what was left of the crops in the fields from the destructive hailstorm would be eaten up by these voracious insects. And even more of these insects would find their way into people's homes. You know, we can wonder as to whether Pharaoh believed Moses or not. But his sorcerers, his advisors, his brain trust... And the individual people in general believed it. They begged Pharaoh to let Israel go so that they could live in peace. In fact, they said in verse 7, Pharaoh, don't you understand that Egypt is already devastated? The battle with Jehovah is lost. We can't take any more. Apparently, Aaron and Moses left Pharaoh's presence for a short time for Pharaoh to consider matters and then they returned for an answer. Well, the tide is turning. Pharaoh's getting more serious about letting Israel go. As he says, okay, go serve your God, but who among you would go? Implying, of course, the more important question, who would stay? For this... However, there was no compromise because Moses answers, our young ones, our old ones, our boys, our girls, all of our lives, everybody goes, everything goes. In other words, not just all the people, but all their possessions as well. Now the matter is crystal clear to Pharaoh. His paranoia that Israel would leave permanently has been confirmed. Why would every last Hebrew... And every last one of their livestock need to leave for a three-day pilgrimage. No, Pharaoh thinks they plan on leaving forever. So in verses 10 and 11, Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. No. I will only allow the males among you to go. But the women and the children and the livestock have to be left behind. That was his final answer. As Moses and Aaron were being thrown out of his palace. Of course, that wasn't good enough for God. So he tells Moses to stretch out his hand, and the locusts come. The eighth plague is now set into motion, and an east wind begins to blow. And on the flow of that wind, in come the locusts. A horde of locusts, as has never been seen before, they devour everything in their path. Here again, we see that God uses, as in all the previous plagues, nature itself to strike the Egyptians. Pharaoh took one look at this, and he called for Moses and Aaron. And he brings them in, and he, he does as he's done earlier, he confesses that he's sinned against God. But this time, and he yet another step, Pharaoh actually asks for forgiveness. But this wasn't true repentance anymore. Then his belief that Yahweh exists is trust and love. It was just the use of whatever means necessary, even if it meant groveling a little bit to remove this deadly plague. Well, the locust would drive Egypt to death through starvation. I mean, Pharaoh finally was sensing All this was leading up to. And so he begged for mercy. Yet the minute Jehovah reversed that wind, sent the locusts back eastward and into the great sea, the Pharaoh hardened and refused to free Israel. This time, God's credited with doing the hardening of Pharaoh's irredeemable heart. And according to the now well-established pattern... Verse 21 brings the ninth stroke, the third plague of the third set of plagues. Therefore, it's unannounced to Pharaoh or to the Egyptian people. And you know, this stroke is the most terrible of them all up to this point. Darkness. Darkness that it's a foreshadowing of final death of spiritual death of evil which is near a darkness it says that is not only seen but it is so thick that it is literally felt a darkness that is far more than merely the absence of light it's a darkness which lasted three days throughout Egypt but it didn't happen up in Goshen as we read in verse 23 now Please pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. What God did here, He also had done at creation. He separated. He made a distinction. He divided the darkness from the light. Over the ones who held His people in servitude was darkness.
1: Over His own
0: people who served Him, was light. Now we need to not overlook four little words in verse 21. They will feel darkness. The Egyptians felt the darkness, the Israelites felt the light. How does one feel darkness or light? Ah, uh, remember that first lesson back in Torah when we studied creation. And we found that when God created light in Genesis 1.3 that it was a different thing than the type of lights to create visual light waves which occurred in Genesis 1.14. The word used for light the light that would remain over Israel up in the land of Goshen is the exact same word that God used in Genesis 1-3. In Hebrew, the word is or, O-W-R. And in a nutshell, it means enlightenment. That is, good as opposed to evil. The truth as opposed to a lie. When you switch on a lamp, you get visual light, the type of light talked about in Genesis one fourteen. When you hear from God, you get spiritual light, enlightenment, the type of light talked about in Genesis 1-3. There's a difference. Well, we talked about the light over the Hebrews, so what kind of darkness was over the Egyptians? Again, the exact same Hebrew word used in Genesis to describe the opposite of or, enlightenment that opposite word is koshek c h o s e k koshek right and it means darkness not like nighttime but a very negative darkness a kind that blots out good a kind that leads men into wrong it's evil the exact same wordplay at the beginning of Genesis when God creates a distinction between God's enlightenment and spiritual depravity. Light versus dark is used right here in Exodus to describe the condition of Egypt, darkness, as opposed to the condition of Israel, light. Okay. Yet the account also makes it clear that in in addition to the or and the koshek that visual light and darkness was also involved so let us not make a metaphor out of verse 23 where it says that a man couldn't see his brother nor could he arise from the spot or as the complete jewish bible says people couldn't see each other what kind of circumstance could such could cause such dense visual darkness. I mean, just being without sunlight or even moonlight would have created, would not have created the kind of darkness that's being described here. We we deal with this all the time. Now the Egyptians as all other cultures knew how to deal with nighttime. They had oil lamps, pit fires, torches, all manner of way of going about their business after dark. The idea that no one could move from his spot that is, they couldn't even see to move around does not reflect a typical nighttime experience. No, this was not three 24-hour periods of just extended nighttime. There are natural conditions that happen from time to time which brings a type of darkness in which the Darkness actually seems to absorb the light. Being from California, I've encountered two of these conditions. Fog and a dust storm. I mean, I've been on Highway 101 outside of Santa Barbara when the fog was so dense that one's high beams wouldn't penetrate any more than five or six feet in front of the car. And I mean that in the most literal possible sense. I've also been in sandstorms in the desert where the sun was literally blotted out midday. It became dark. But in Egypt, there came occasionally a brutal type of dust storm called a kamsin. A kamsin. Every few years, a combination of um, conditions collides. It causes the air itself to become charged with static electricity, which literally lifts and suspends superfine particles of dust into the air. Alongside, of course, the coarser particles that are being blown by the wind. Now, if anyone here has spent any time in very dry climates you know that static electricity is a normal everyday occurrence um, that you have to deal with. Clothing sticks to other clothing. You get shocked every time you grab the handle of your car door. Pull a wool sweater overhead and you could light up a room from the sparks that fly. Okay. The, these calm-seeing dust storms turn day into night. Okay. And especially in ancient times, when they didn't have doors... That sealed. Windows were just open holes in a wall. Okay. Dust came indoors pretty easily. Indoors you can escape the winds and the sandblast effect of the storm. But you can't escape the thick dust clouds caused by the electrically charged air. Indoors became dark as well. Even oil lamps didn't help. Mobility ended. Now, I suspect this is what occurred as far as the visual element of light is concerned. Otherwise, it would be out of character with the eight previous plagues that all involved natural elements of nature. Of course, this calm scene was of supernatural origin and was several times more ferocious than happens by itself in nature. I mean, so fierce was it that it frightened Pharaoh and the Egyptian people out of their wits. I mean, but the real fright undoubtedly came from this feeling of the koshek, this spiritual darkness, evil, that covered them like a blanket. I mean, the type that makes the little hairs on the back of your neck. Kind of stand up on end when you see something evil or dangerous. Rather, when you can't see it, but you can sense it. This was a time of real horror in Egypt. But in the same land, up north, the Israelites were celebrating with joy. Now, this ninth plague of Exodus is just like the irony of being a believer in this present world. Darkness, koshek, enlightenment, or exist side by side. We who are covered with God's light live in the same space, we breathe the same air as the majority of the world who lives under a blanket of darkness. At the same time that we can have our hearts broken and weep for those who are in servitude to the prince of darkness, we can and we should celebrate. That God's enlightenment is upon us and everyone who trusts him. Now, by the way, notice that only Israel received light. It's no different today. We non-Israelites by birth, through Jesus, have been joined to Israel's covenants. That which benefits Israel now benefits us. So Pharaoh sends out an urgent call for Moses. And still this foolish, rebellious king tries to bargain with God. We've never tried to bargain with God, have we? (laughs) After the previous stroke, he'd agreed to let only the Israelite males go to worship Yehovah. Now he says, if Moses will get God to call off the darkness... All Israel can go, man, woman, girl, boy, young, old, but their livestock needs to remain behind. Moses declines the offer and says everything must go. Why? Because it says in verse 26, Yehovah has called Israel to serve him, which means they must sacrifice to him, but they don't know exactly what this is going to involve. They don't know what he's going to ask for. I mean, God may want all their livestock, Maybe he won't want any. They don't know. So the only thing they can do is take all their people, all their possessions into the desert, set them before God, and see what it is he might demand of them. Hmm. Did you catch that? Here is another permanent God principle that just bursts out of nowhere. We're to submit all that we have All that we are, ourselves, our families, every possession, before God. Because we cannot possibly know at any given moment what it is he's going to demand of us. We have to go forward in faith and trust and hold nothing back. Nothing. It's all his, and it's his to give or to take as it so pleases him. Yet, what's our typical response? Okay, God, you can have everything but this. Um, Don't take that, okay? You can have me. Just don't take my job. Don't mess with my health. Don't mess with my wife, my kids. Those things that the Israelites would have left behind... At Pharaoh's orders would have remained in servitude. So Moses had to refuse. Everything we... Hear me. Everything we leave behind but still possess. Everything that we do not take with us to present to God when we approach the cross stays in Egypt it stays in bondage and servitude. Therefore, it's not available to serve God. God has made it clear that everything we are and possess is to put before Him when we turn our life over to Him. Now, neither Moses nor Pharaoh would budge. Moses won't leave without the livestock, and Pharaoh won't let Israel go with it. Pharaoh orders Moses to leave his presence and don't come back. Because if he ever approaches Pharaoh again, Moses will be put to death. Pharaoh, by his own words, has just sealed his, pe- his people's fate. There will be no more opportunities to avoid judgment. God does not strive with man forever. Heard those words before? God does not strive with man forever. Okay, it ends. And we don't know ahead of time exactly when that day or hour is. But when it does end, when God does decide to turn us over to our innate evil inclinations, all hope of redemption vanishes forever. Now that is a scary, scary thought. And it's terribly true. Let's move on to chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. Adonai said to Moses, I'm going to bring still one more plague on Pharaoh in Egypt. And after that, he'll let you leave. When he does let you go, he'll throw you out completely. Now tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor and every woman her neighbor for gold and silver jewelry. Adonai made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. Moreover, Moses was regarded by Pharaoh's servants and the people as a very great man in the land of Egypt. Moses said, here's what Adonai says, about midnight I will go out into Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh sitting on the throne to the firstborn of a slave girl at the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. There will be a horrendous wailing throughout all the land of Egypt. There's never been another like it. There will never be again. But not even a dog's growl will be heard against any people of Israel. Not against people, nor against animals. In this way, you'll realize that Adonai distinguishes between Egyptians and Israel. All your servants will come down to me, prostrate themselves before me, and say, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in the heat of anger, and Adonai said to Moses, Pharaoh won't listen to you. So that so, that still more of my wonders will be shown in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted, and he didn't let the people of Israel leave his land. Judgment. What we see in chapters 11 and starting next week in 12 is judgment. What is judgment? It's the time at which we receive what's due us, according to God's system of justice. In the Bible, judgment almost always results in a negative consequence. We all, saved and unsaved, are going to be judged. If we're saved, however... If we trust God by way of his son, Yeshua, we will not be condemned. We will not be the subjects of God's wrath. If we're not saved, we will be condemned. Pharaoh and Egypt had been given nine chances of accepting God's will and obeying him. This tenth blow upon Egypt brings with it no choices. This is not another warning. This isn't another chance for Pharaoh and Egypt to repent. The time for warnings and choices is past. Egypt's fate is now etched in concrete. This so-called tenth plague equates to what happens when we die and then we stand before God. The so-called tenth plague means that some will live forever in darkness. Remember that Hebrew word for darkness, koshek? Others will live forever in light. From this condition, whether it's light or darkness, there's not going to be any change. No opportunity for change for all eternity. Now, the first three verses of chapter 11 were either spoken to Moses before or during the last audience Moses had with Pharaoh. In other words, we saw in chapter 10, after Pharaoh called for Moses when God covered Egypt with uh, spiritual darkness, then when Moses refused Pharaoh's offer for all all Israel to leave with the condition of leaving their livestock behind, Pharaoh tells Moses in a fit of rage, don't you ever come back. Well, now we find out in Exodus 11.8 that during that same conversation Moses had raged right back at Pharaoh. And we see that not only did Moses refuse Pharaoh's offer but Moses told him that that night about midnight all of Egypt's firstborn would die. That included even the livestock. That the Israelites were not to be affected. Not them nor their livestock. Now while I don't blame Cecil B. DeMille For depicting that which killed the Egyptian firstborn as this green cloud of death, all right, floating mercilessly around the streets of Egypt. I mean, he had to show us something. It does kind of give us the wrong impression. I mean, I've even heard Bible teachers, good ones, say that it was the angel of death that wandered throughout all of Egypt and killed the Egyptian firstborn. No, it wasn't. It was Jehovah Himself who took all those lives. Now, how exactly that that occurred, we don't know, except that it was by Almighty God's very own hand that the life of all those firstborns was extinguished. Verse one says that Jehovah, Jehovah Yud Hey Vav Hey, not the Lord, not Adonai, not Malach Adonai. Or anything else. Yehovah says, I will bring one more plague. And then says, I will go out. And kill all the firstborn of Egypt. And after this terrible judgment, God says, now Pharaoh will release you. In fact, he's going to drive you out of Egypt. But before Israel leaves there to strip Egypt... They're to ask for gold and silver from the Egyptian people. And they're going to get all they asked for. Because verse 3 says that the Hebrews found favor in the eyes of the Egyptians and that they saw Moses as a very great man. Translation here, take anything you want. We can't fight Moses or your God, just leave. To the bulk of the Egyptian people, Moses was just a powerful sorcerer. He was just more powerful than the Egyptians' magicians. And they had no interest in testing him any further. Frankly, this whole thing was no different from the Egyptians' perspective than if a robber was holding a knife at their throat. It was a money or your life kind of a deal. And Interestingly, to this very day, that's exactly how the Egyptians still see it. If any of you or your friends have doubts about whether Israel was actually ever in Egypt or there was an exodus, just tell them to ask a modern-day Egyptian about it. The anger over Israel taking all that gold and silver from Egypt has remained a bitter, sore spot in the heart of the Egyptian people right up to modern times. Now, let us not overlook just what is at the bottom of this decision by God to crush Egypt with these supernatural devastations. Because God reminds us in verse 7 that all of this is done in order that you may know that Jehovah makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We keep hearing this over and over in the story, the Exodus story of the plagues, don't we? That God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. You know, when God keeps repeating something, it's a sure bet we need to pay attention. So let us not ever think that the setting apart of Israel from the rest of the world is of some minor or remote issue or it's change to become obsolete. Remember from a biblical standpoint, Egypt, which is real and tangible, is also a type. That is, Egypt is representative of the world at large. It's representative of all those not joined to Israel. To this very day, to the end of time, God sees the world as Israel and everybody else. Where does that leave us, Gentile believers, Jewish believers? thankfully, with Israel, as part of Israel. I mean, this is one good reason to follow God's directives to bless Israel, because when we're blessing Israel, we're also blessing ourselves. I mean, Romans 9, 10, and 11 covers this in great detail, but it can also be somewhat summed up by Romans 11, 17, where Paul says in this famous olive tree analogy, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentile believers, a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and had become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree. In other words, Israel is symbolized in Scripture as the olive tree. And in Romans eleven twenty four, 24, for if you Gentiles were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, Israel, how much more will those natural branches, those natural Israelites, be grafted back into their own tree when they trust again? In other words, from God's spiritual perspective, a Gentile believer is grafted into the covenants of Israel. And it is those covenants that, from a spiritual perspective, makes Israel Israel. And it separates them from everybody else. God did not give his covenants to Gentiles. They were only given to Israel. By trusting in Yeshua as Lord and Messiah, though, we're grafted into those covenants. Now, I'm not saying you become a Jew when you become saved. There are physical Jews and there are physical Gentiles. But by God's reckoning... Neither a physical Jew nor a physical Gentile even automatically belongs to this thing that Paul called a true spiritual Israel or the Israel of God. Only those Jews and Gentiles who believe and trust in Jesus. Again, I caution you, I'm not saying... That a physical member of the tribe of Israel is no longer an Israelite if he doesn't believe in Yeshua. I'm saying that from the earthly, fleshly, physical perspective, on the one hand, there is also the spiritual, heavenly perspective that God has on the other. Salvation, deliverance, concerns only the spiritual, not the physical perspective. God didn't come to save our flesh. He came to save our eternal souls. So what we need to come away from this with for our study of Torah is that God made and demonstrated a distinction between Israel and everybody else. Here in Exodus, it's between Israel and Egypt. This is such an important foundational principle. When we hear the commonly use church word sanctification, it really means to be set apart for God. That's what it means. And this is not an Old Testament distinction that became dissolved. It remains intact in the New Testament as well. Jesus did not end the distinction between Israel and the world. My goodness, he himself was a Jew. He was an Israelite, and he made a point of letting people know that. He simply provided a new and lasting way for Gentiles to partake of, to be grafted into Israel's covenants by means of his own blood. But don't misunderstand. Even the new covenant was not a covenant between God and Gentiles. It was a covenant with Israel. Okay. We won't go any further with that for now because that's kind of a long lesson on in itself. But let's back up for a moment. It was during these three days of darkness, Koshak, that had fallen upon Egypt that Moses pronounced to Pharaoh the coming death of the firstborn. Okay. Yet while all Egypt was cowering, Under the horror of the complete absence of light and that blanket of evil that lay over them, Israel was celebrating joyously because they were experiencing light. Why? Because they knew the time of deliverance was at hand. It was right there. In fact, during that time of darkness for for Egypt, Israel had four days before Jehovah would go throughout Egypt killing all the firstborn already selected their Passover lambs and this was according to God's instructions this would become the establishment of the very first Passover Okay. now let's fast forward about 1400 years to 30 AD we're in Jerusalem and it's Passover, a Hebrew Pesach. Jesus has completed his Passover meal in the company of his 12 disciples the evening before and is now nailed, bleeding and suffocating on the execution stake. But before death overtakes him, the land suddenly becomes covered in what? A thick, terrifying Darkness. Yeshua, our Passover lamb, was selected and sacrificed when all was dark, literally and spiritually. Yet in heaven, at that same moment, great joyousness was taking place because deliverance was at hand. Okay? There should have been a great celebration in Jerusalem, too among all the Jews, but they were blinded to the truth, and they couldn't see that Christ was their deliverance. He was their Passover lamb. So let's fast forward again now, 2,000 years from Christ's passion to today. Our world is becoming darker and darker. Spiritually, our entire planet is becoming so evil and rebellious, is under such koshek, under such spiritual darkness. I mean, it's, it's hard not to be despondent. It is. And feel full of hopelessness and despair and confusion as we watch our world reeling out of control. But you know, as believers, those of us set apart, sanctified for God, joined to Israel's covenants, what should our reaction be? We've already been given the example right here in Exodus. should be the same as those Israelites in Egypt that we're reading about. Celebration. Those who do not know God may be in darkness and about to experience eternal spiritual death. But we who do know God live in his light and are about to experience deliverance. We're close. The example for how we're to live during these last days, I'm convinced they are, as each day reveals new and deeper levels of man's wickedness and depravity is right here in Exodus. Okay? We can and should actually take it from God's perspective. High expectation for final and complete deliverance. But you know, just like the Israelites, I'm sure their joy, as ours ought to be, is bittersweet. Okay? Like those Israelites, we all have friends and relatives and neighbors that made the choice to join with the world and to stick with all of its darkness. The sad fact is that until Jesus reigns on earth, light and darkness, death and life are going to rule simultaneously. We'll stop here and pick all this up next week.